We'll go ahead and dismiss our children at this time to go to kids' church. Uh, our children at this time to go to kids' kids church. Uh, you know, this past week we had a family night on Wednesday night, and we had uh, all of the families and all of the kids and all of the uh, everybody, students, and everybody all in here together. And I asked a question to the students. I asked a question. I said, "I said, what's the most important?" Thing I said, what's the most important thing in your parents' lives? And one of the kids, as honest as, as a child, looked and he said, me. <laughs> and as Joel and the band were singing that song, Be Thou My Vision, my prayer is that when my kids are asked what's the most important thing in my life, that they would say Christ. I know that more often than not, that's not the answer. More often than not, it's family, football, my hobby of choice for that day, for that week. But my heart and my prayer is that when my kids are asked what's the most important thing in dad's life, that they would say Christ. May He be our delight. May He be our desire. If you have your Bibles this morning, I'll invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 7. We've been studying over the last several weeks, months, maybe longer than that, uh, the book of Matthew. Uh, we will be, uh, just don't get your hopes up, we'll be here a while. Uh, we've been for several months on the book of Matthew. We're only on Matthew chapter 7, uh, so this will take us a while. Uh, as we've been studying the book of Matthew, uh, we understand that the book of Matthew was written by Matthew. Very good. Y'all are paying attention. The book of Matthew was written by Matthew, and it was written, the audience for the book of Matthew was the Jews. Very good. And it was presented, and it was written to present Jesus as the son of, as the son of David. Very good. And so as we read Matthew chapter 7, this is in the, ser- this is in the midst of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, probably one of the longest discourses uh, that Jesus, one of the longest public discourses that we have addressed, uh, that we have of Jesus addressing uh, the multitudes. And while we understand that the audience was the multitude, that Jesus' specific audience in the Sermon on the Mount was his disciples. Uh, If we go back to the very beginning, it says that that he spoke to his disciples and, and the disciples, while the multitude was the audience, that the specific address and the specific audience of this Sermon on the Mount was his disciples. Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. Very familiar passage with most of us. Jesus says, Judge not that you be not judged. For what judgment you judge, you'll be judged. And with what measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye? Hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye, then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet, and turn and tear you into pieces. Let's pray. Father, as we see this 
this passage of Scripture. Lord, may you speak to our hearts. May you convict us of our heart of judgment and condemnation. May you speak to our heart of that which we've been forgiven of. For those who have been forgiven much, forgive much. God, may in this passage, may we see the love of Christ. May we see His death, burial, and resurrection. May we see Jesus lifted high. For it's in His wonderful name we pray. Amen. I hope that when you leave here today, that you will leave with a heart that is full of empathy rather than a heart of judgment. Uh, If you notice in your bulletin, There's some notes for you. We've just begun doing this. Uh, I'll try. I mentioned this last week. I'll try as best I can to stay stay on topic and stay on point. Uh, And so I'll try and give you those notes as as we go along. Uh, But this is, I titled my message this morning, The People's Court. Because every time we encounter people, whether we realize it or not, we are making judgments upon them. We are, we are and, and, and that's not always a bad thing. Whenever, uh, you know, as a, as a pastor and as a principal and somebody uh, 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 who is, you know, running a school and, and, and somebody walks in, we immediately make judgments about them. We, they walk in our, our church or they walk in our school and we say, okay, this is, you know, a middle-aged family. They probably have young children. They're probably going to be looking for uh, the elementary school. Uh, and so we, we, we begin to, to prepare ourselves to, or we have someone that walks in uh, uh, in a very you know, destitute situation and you can tell that they're homeless or you can tell that, that, that they're in great need. And so as a pastor, I put on that, that pastor hat and we say, okay, you know, how, how can I as a pastor reach out and, and show empathy and show grace to this, to this man or this woman? And so we, without even thinking about it, that's, that, that's what we do. We make judgments. We we, we make judgments about the people that we work with, about the people that, that we encounter in the grocery store. We make judgments about uh, the people that, that, that we encounter with on a daily lot, that we encounter on a daily basis. How many of us have ever seen someone in a circumstance or situation, been in a circumstance or situation, and made the statement, I would never do that? I would never allow myself to be in that situation. Or maybe, or maybe we've, we've, we've said this. My kids would never act like that. Or, or, or if my kids ever did like, if my kids ever did that, this is what I would do. And we, we, we make these assumptions and we make these statements and we often make them from a position of pride, of arrogance. Look at who I am. I would never find myself the victim of of substance abuse. I would never find myself in the bondage of alcoholism. I would never find myself in an abusive relationship. If my husband ever did that to me, this is what I would do. I would never let my kids take advantage of me. If If my kids ever did this, This is what I would do. And we're saying it from a position that is so far removed from the individual that we're making the judgment upon. I pray 
that when we leave this place, that we would be filled with empathy rather than judgment. You know, several years ago, when my wife and I were first married, uh, I came home one day, and she said, something happened today, and, and I don't know how to fix it. I said, okay. She said, she said the water doesn't work. I said, what do you mean? She goes, turn on the water faucet and the water doesn't work. And I looked at her and so I went and turned on the faucet and I looked at her and I said, well, did you pay the bill? She said, well, yeah, I paid the bill. So you know, I'll go out to the road and sure enough, the water's been cut off. And, and so we called the water company and they said, well, we sent you a disconnect notice. And then we sent you another disconnect notice. And when that was ignored, you know, we shut off your water. And so I came inside and I asked Natalie, I said, you know, did you pay the bill? And she said, well, yeah, I paid the bill. And I said, so I pulled out the checkbook because this was before they had online banking and you actually had to use a checkbook and a register and reconcile your bank statement. And so, so I began looking through and I said, well, I see you paid the bill two months ago, but there's no check for the water company. So off we go down to Goodwood and we are standing in line at the water company and, 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 has anybody ever been there? Has anybody ever found themselves at standing in line in Goodwood because, because you, you, you forgot to pay or you thought you paid but you didn't pay or, or maybe you didn't have the money to pay? And we're sitting there and my wife and I kind of look at each other and she has the same look in, my, in, in, in her eyes that I have in my eyes and we're standing in there and we're looking around and we say, we are not like these people. But the reality was, we were those people. But in, in, even in the midst of the very same circumstance that, I, that, that the people who surrounded me with, I looked around and with a sense of arrogance and with a sense of judgment, I said, I'm not like these people. I'm better than them. I have a job. I, I, I have gainful employment. I, I pay my bills. I, I have a good credit score. We're, we're not like these people not realizing that I was those people. It's easy to pass judgment or condemn others. Judgment is a determination of right or wrong. Judgment is also a pronouncement of condemnation. It's easy to pass judgment or condemn others but I want us to understand that whenever we pass judgment or condemn others, that the reality is, is that is filling a deep-seated, God-given need that we have within ourselves. When we pass judgment on others, when we express or pronounce condemnation on others, what we're actually doing is we are seeking affirmation for ourselves we are all born with a with an innate desire to be affirmed to be to be to be told that that we're successful that that we're good that 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 we are accepted and when we don't feel affirmed or when we don't feel accepted in one in one area of, of our life or another area of our life what we do is we pass judgment and we pass condemnation on others so that as we push them down, we can allow ourselves to feel better. We can feel, feel that, that, that we are more accomplished or that we are accepted in this area or in that area. 
But the reality is, is whenever we point out someone else's failure, it's most oftentimes an indication of our own failures. Have you ever noticed the thing that you are most judgmental about in someone else? Most easy to condemn in someone else is an area in your life where there's a great amount of weakness. You hate people who are selfish? Well, maybe it's because the very heart of who you are, you're a very selfish person. Do you hate people who are, who are loud and arrogant and obnoxious? Maybe it's because you're loud, arrogant, and obnoxious. Is there, is there something that, that right now that, that, that you're thinking, man, when so-and-so does this or when somebody does this, that just drives me crazy. Now let me ask you to do what Jesus asked. Look at yourself. Are there things in your life? Are there failures? Are there inconsistencies that you see? And as you pronounce judgment or condemnation on others, that it allows you to feel better about yourself? What we're often the most critical and judgmental about in others reveals our own imperfection our judgment reveals our own imperfection turn with me if you will to the book of second samuel chapter 12 this principle is never more clearly illustrated than in the story of david and bathsheba men are really bad about this because men are compartmental that's why men can go to war and shoot people and come home and live productive lives. That's why you know, men can go to work and they can do work and they can, they can have the most stressful, horrible day at work. And whenever they get in the car, that 30-minute that drive from work to home, they're able to shut the work compartment and open up dad compartment whenever they get home. And the wife says, how was your day? You say, it was fine. Well, the reality was it was the most stressful day you've had in six years, but you've closed that compartment. And so men, we have this, this innate way of, of dealing with, with our own sin, our own imperfections, our own uh, failures, and then closing that compartment, and then passing judgment and condemnation on someone else who does the very same thing. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 through 7. We know the story. David has stayed home from war. Supposed to be away at battle. He goes up on top of the rooftop. He sees a woman named Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, one of his chosen soldiers, one of his very select soldiers. And he says, who is that? He says, that's Bathsheba. He says, she's beautiful. Bring her to me. I'm the most powerful man in the kingdom. Bring her to me. She comes to his house. Sends his servant to go get her. She comes to his house. David Lies with Bathsheba. The scripture says he knew Bathsheba. She becomes pregnant. He sends Uriah to the front lines. Has, her, has him essentially murdered. He then marries Bathsheba to legitimize the pregnancy. Nathan is revealed this by the Holy Spirit. And he comes to David and this is what he says. 
Lord said, the Lord sent Nathan to David and said, he came to him and he said to him, there were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had brought and nourished and grew up together with him and with his children and ate his food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom and it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come so David's anger was greatly aroused at the man and he said to Nathan as the Lord lives this man who has done this shall surely die and he shall restore fourfold the lamb Because he did this thing and because he had no pity, then Nathan said to David, You are that man. Do you see the principle? The biblical principle is there should be hell to pay for the man that does this. He should be condemned. He should should have to repay. Judgment should fall upon him. Yet what had David just done? The very same thing. Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9 says this. The heart of a man is deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? Our heart, if we are honest with ourselves, we're honest with ourselves when we look deep inside of ourselves and we see our hearts and we see our thoughts and I am so thankful that no one else can see the thoughts that are running through my mind because if you saw the thoughts that are running through my mind on a daily basis there's no way you would stand and sit out there and listen to this pastor that is up here preaching because I understand my heart is deceitful and above all else it is wicked the things that I think, the, the, the desires that I have, the, the, the thoughts that come into my mind are wicked. Paul said this in Romans chapter 7. He writes and he says, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul says this of himself. This is the same man who founded the majority of the churches in the ancient world started the first church in Europe started the first church in North Africa was solely responsible for being the missionary to the Gentile world and this is what he says of himself "O wretched man that I am who will set me free from this body of death he says later on at the end of his life as he's writing to Timothy from prison he says this in 1 Timothy chapter 1.15. He says it is a trustworthy statement that Christ came to die for sinners of whom I am the chiefest. I guarantee you Paul wasn't the chiefest of sinners because I am. But do you hear Paul's acknowledgement of, of his own depravity? When we see ourselves in light of God's holiness, our sin is magnified. Grace works empathy 
not judgment. When we have a collision with the grace of God, it works empathy, not condemnation. I want to point out something to you. Many of us know the story of Abraham. We know the story of Abraham. We know the story of Sarah. I want to ask you this question. When does God change Abraham's name? Was it in Genesis chapter 12 with Abraham's covenant? What about in Genesis 15 when God, God culminates the covenant by, by putting Abram to sleep and, and the, the flaming oven and the torch pass between the sacrifices? That's when God changes His name, right there at the covenant. No. God changes Abram's name from Abram to Abraham much later in the book of Genesis after Abram and Sarah have decided, you know what, God, you're not going to do what you said you're going to do in a timing that suits us, so we're going to take matters into our own hand. I'm going to give my maidservant, Hagar, to Abram, and she's going to give us a son. And, and the son was born, Ishmael, and, and there, was, there was all of the fallout from that. Thirteen years of silence. God doesn't show up. God doesn't speak to Abraham and Sarah. They think, we've screwed up. We've, we've destroyed this opportunity. And then God shows up. And he says, Abram, I will be your God and you will be my people. Your name is no longer Abram, but is Abraham. It has nothing to do with what you've done and it has everything to do with who I am. It has nothing to do with how obedient or disobedient you've been, but it has everything to do with how much I love you and I care for you. And at that moment, when Abram came head on, with the grace of God, when Abram realized that it has nothing to do with who I am, that God loves me for who I am and not what I've done, that God loves me in spite of what I've done, that His grace is poured out at that moment, that's when God changed. Grace works empathy, not pride, not arrogance, not condemnation. When we realize who we are, when we see our heart condition, and whenever we see ourselves as a sinner before a holy God, as a liar, as a thief, as an adulterer, and we realize that God's love has been poured out upon us and that we find grace and we find mercy, then we stand right next to the addict. We stand right next to the drug addict, to the alcoholic. We stand right next to the adulterer. We stand right next to the rapist. We stand right next to the murderer. And we said, but by the grace of God, there go I. Have you ever realized that that drug addict if you were placed in the same set of circumstances that he was, the same family dynamic, the same abuse, the same neglect, the same abandonment, the same life circumstances of failure and disappointment year after year, given those set of circumstances, you might find yourself in the very same spot. When we realize the grace of God, 
that has been poured out to us. Grace works empathy, not judgment. I want us to point out the story of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a tax collector. For many of us, that means nothing because we pay our taxes with H&R Block and uh, Jackson Hewitt, and that means nothing to us. In those days, the Roman government conscripted tax collectors. And these tax collectors were told, as long as you give the Roman government what we ask of you, you can tack on any additional taxes or fees that you want, and you can keep it for yourself. So they became very shrewd, very dishonest men, hated by their community, hated by the people whom they served. Zacchaeus comes in face to face, a head-on collision with the grace of God. And notice his response. Zacchaeus. Jesus said, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house today. I'm going to come and I'm going to eat with you. I'm going to show you grace, you compassion, you love. And Zacchaeus, his, his response was, I will sell all that I have and I'll give it to the poor. His response was not condemnation on other tax collectors. His response was not condemnation on others. His response was inward. His response was an an aspect of self-examination. He came head on with grace. And when he came head on with grace, his response was, Oh, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. What have I done? Let me repent of what I have done, and let me make right what I have done. When we come in contact with grace, and whenever we have a head-on train wreck with grace, our response is introspective. It is not outward. It is inward. The emphasis of this passage is self-examination. Is there sin in my life? Is there things in my life I need to fix? Yes, there's a speck over there in my brother's eye, but is there something in my life that I need to make right? What am I most judgmental about? What do I condemn others about? Is there something in my life that I need to fix? I do want to notice the context of this passage. Go to Matthew chapter 7. As we look at the passage, it says, verse verse 3 and why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye but do not consider the plank in your own eye or how can you say verse 4 how can you say to your brother let me remove the speck from your eye and look at the plank that is within your own eye verse 5 hypocrite first remove the plank from your own eye and then you will be able to see clearly remove the speck from your brother's eye do you see in the in the text itself that there is a constant reference to to brotherhood Judgment and admonition, there is a place for admonition, church. Notice Jesus Jesus doesn't say, don't judge people. He says, be careful in your judgment. Look first inwardly. There's a place for admonition. There's a place for admonition, and that admonition, that place for admonition, is in the context of a loving relationship. You must earn the right to admonish have you demonstrated love or do you just want to show up and tell everybody what they're doing wrong have you earned the right to remove the speck from your brother's eye 
Have you first inwardly looked and, and evaluated, done a, done a real honest evaluation of, of yourself? Is there sin in my life? And have you demonstrated love, compassion, care? Have you brought that brother or sister out to lunch? Had coffee with them just because you love them and want to spend time with them? When was the last time you offered to watch their kids? But you'll be sure and remind them what they're doing is wrong, right? Baptists are good at that. We'll sew up at church and we'll tell you what you should and shouldn't do, but, but as soon as we leave, you're on your own. That must have been Jesus calling. <laughs> the context of admonition is in the context of relationship. We must earn the right to admonish. Not only must we earn the right to admonish, but admonition is always for the purpose of restoration, not condemnation. When we admonish our brother, when we, when we rebuke our brother, the scripture says in 2 Timothy that all scripture is God-breathed and is, is, is profitable for correction, for teaching, rebuke, so that the man of God may be, may be righteous, so that he may be complete and perfect. Rebuke and, and admonition has its place. It's in the context of a loving relationship and is always for the purpose of restoration to restore the brother. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus says, if you see your brother in sin, then, then go to him. Lovingly point out his sin so that he may be restored, so that you may gain your brother. And if he refuses, bring someone else with you. So for the purpose of restoration, so that he may be restored. If he still refuses, bring him before the church. Why? So we can kick him out of the church? No. So that he'll be restored. There is a, there is a desire in rebuke and correction and admonition that, that the, the, the individual that's in sin be restored to the body. That he be restored to righteousness. And I'm so thankful that in times in my life, whenever I've been in sin, whenever I've been disobedient, that those who've come to me in admonition and those who've come to me in rebuke have not, sent, have not sought to condemn me, but they have sought to restore me, understanding that, that they themselves had need for restoration at a time. Be careful regarding your admonition. The last passage here in verse 7, chapter 7, verse 6, I mean... Jesus says, don't throw your pearls before the swine. He says, don't give what is holy to dogs. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 7 says, in our admonition, do not rebuke a scoffer. There are those who are in Christ. And those who are in Christ have been the recipient of grace. And as we are the recipient of grace and as we are the recipient of mercy, those who have been forgiven much will forgive much. There are those who are arrogant and those who are prideful. And those who are arrogant and those who are prideful will not hear the rebuke of a righteous man. Be careful in your admonition. I want to close with this. We are all deserving of judgment and condemnation. Every one of us. The scripture says in chapter Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, that it is appointed for a man to die once, and after that, to face judgment. 
that there is a good, a righteous, a holy God who will judge the living and the dead. But the scary part about the truth of the gospel is that God's judgment is going to be based not upon your peers. The question that Jesus is going to ask is, were you more holy, were you more righteous than the person sitting in the pew next to you? Were you more righteous and were you more holy than those whom you went to school with or those who you worked with or those who you went to church with? But the reality of the gospel is this, is that we will be judged by the righteousness of Christ. And when I stand before the righteousness of Christ, regardless of how many sermons I've preached, regardless of how many people I've led to Christ, regardless of how many mission trips I've gone on, regardless of how much money I put in the offering plate, when I stand before the righteousness of Christ, I am a sinner. And I am going to stand condemned because even in my righteousness, Isaiah says our righteousness are filthy rags. And the language used there in Isaiah is that the the filthy rags are those rags that a woman used during during her time of the month. That that is our righteousness in the light of Christ's holiness. And you're going to bring that before God and say, look, I was better than the guy next to me. The scripture tells us that we will stand before God in judgment. But the good news of the gospel is this, church. Hear this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died. Romans 5, 8, God demonstrated his great love for us. And that while we were sinners, while we had this righteousness of filthy rags and all the goodness that we had done, was worthless while we were while we were sinners while we were haters of god while we were mockers of god god demonstrated his great love for us that while we were yet sinners christ died for us the gospel is this is that you will stand before christ in judgment you will stand before god in judgment but those who are in christ christ will step in on your behalf and say he can have my righteousness i will give him my righteousness And I will take his sin. That's the gospel. That God made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf. That we might become the righteousness of Christ. And this morning church. If there's someone here who's never had an encounter with the grace of God in such a way that it transforms your life. That you say I once was lost but now I'm found. I once was blind but now I see. I once was a sinner, stand condemned, but now because of who Christ is and what He has done, I can stand before a holy God forgiven. If you've never experienced the salvation of Christ, I want to invite you to come. In just a few moments, we're going to sing a hymn of invitation. Our kids are going to come up and they're going to sing with with the praise team. And during that time, if God has spoken to your heart, I want to invite you to come. Maybe God is calling you to be a part of what we're doing here at Redeemer. Whatever it is that God is speaking to your heart, may today be the day of obedience. Will you pray with me? Father, I thank you that your grace works empathy. Lord, I pray this morning that there are those who've never come in contact with the grace of God. They've looked at others and they've said, I'm better than them. 
I'm not as sinful as that person or this person. So I must be okay. Lord, this morning, may your Holy Spirit open the eyes of their heart that they may see themselves as deceitfully wretched. And that they may cry out for grace. Lord, there are those here this morning who've had a judgmental heart. They've looked at others. And they have responded. Saying, I'm better than them. But this morning, your Holy Spirit has revealed to them that they themselves are the recipient of grace. Or may you work empathy in their hearts this morning. Lord, there are those here this morning who need to come to Christ. Those here this morning who need to become a part of Redeemer. Those here this morning who simply need to come down to this altar to repent of sin. Or may this morning, during this time of invitation, may Christ be glorified. And may you find your church obedient. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.